Well, this morning we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Mystery Revealed, and uh, that's because the, the word mystery actually pops up in our text. It got me thinking about mysteries, and uh, you know, if you really think about it, most of the shows that we watch these days are really mystery shows, right? Every cop show, every lawyer show, even every medical show begins with some sort of crime or case or problem, and then most of the you know, the show is someone's investigating it. Someone's trying to figure out and solve uh, the mystery. Uh, for Don and I, one of our favorite uh, mystery shows is Father Brown, if you, if you know him. He is an Anglican priest who has a knack for solving murders. And so uh, it's, a, it's a good thing he does because that poor little village he lives in is about a murder every week. So it's a good thing he's around. Uh, but the best part, of course, is at the end when Father Brown, uh, he unveils, he reveals the, the answer, who committed the murder it's especially good when the inspector is wrong and Father Brown is right and he can, you know, it's just so satisfying to, to have the answer to a problem, both, you know, in, in fiction and also in life. And our text today, as I said, uh, does have a mystery contained within it or a reference to it anyway. Verse 16, uh, Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, in the Bible, a mystery is something that has been sort of covered and now is, is revealed. And so today, we're going to see some ways in which the, the mystery, the, the challenge of living a godly life is, in fact, possible by the grace of God through the understanding of the gospel. And we have to remember here that Paul is writing to a group of believers. He's not writing to those people who don't know the Lord and are struggling to kind of to know him and live for him. He's, he's writing to the church. The church who claims to know God, claims to follow Jesus, and yet also is struggling in terms of how to live a life that honors God. One of the most satisfying things that we can know, one of, one of the most satisfying revelations in our lives is indeed how we can live for God, how we can know him and live for him. And what we're going to see in our text is that there's really two primary things that we need to know, at least according to Paul in this instance. First, it's knowing who we are as the church. And then it's knowing who Jesus is. So these two uh, topics, we're going to pose them as questions, are going to guide our time together. And so the first question that Paul answers is, who is the church? So I'm going to read the first uh, couple of verses, verses 14 and 15 of our text. He says this, uh, remember he's writing to Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, we've hit this verse a couple times already because it really it tells us why, why he wrote this whole letter, right? He says, look, uh, I, I'm hoping to come to Ephesus, but I fear I might be delayed, right? Maybe another shipwreck, beating, death, right? Any of those things are possible for Paul. So he's like, I might not be there soon. So uh, in the meantime, I want to write to you about how the church should conduct itself, how you should behave. And we've been working through a lot of those instructions in chapter 2 and chapter 3, right? We've seen that the church should be a church of prayer and modesty and, and peacefulness and, and proper gender roles in the church, proper leadership structure in the church. And so we've been seeing all of these proper behaviors, but now Paul kind of takes a step back and he just reminds uh, Timothy and the church in Ephesus, look, here's what it means to be the church. And so he has these kind of overarching truths. Uh, we're going to look at two of them, two kind of phrasings he used. The first is, is he calls us the household of God. He says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. 
A household basically means family. So he's saying, look, the church is a family, which shouldn't be surprising. There's a ton of language in the Bible about us being a family. Uh, we're told that we are adopted into the family of God. We're told, of course, that God is our father, that, that other Christians are our brothers and sisters. Uh, and this family language it evokes a real sense of relationship, that we are, we are actually you know, united together. Uh, the, the difference, though, is that in, a, in an earthly family, the things that bind us are our common origins and kind of our shared experiences, right? That we kind of, we grew up together. But in the church, it's a little different. We, we don't have common origins. We all come from different walks of life, different, you know, families, different even places in the world. And yet we do have this real sense of unity. And it's unity not because of our common bonds, but because of our common focus. Uh, there's a theologian, A.W. Tozer, who describes it like this. He says, imagine a, a room full of 100 pianos. He said, and imagine if you were to try to tune those pianos to each other or if you were to tune them to the same tuning fork. He says, if you were to tune them to the same tuning fork, they would, they would be tuned to each other, much more so, in fact, than if you tried to, to just tune them to each other individually. And that's, that's kind of the church, that we are tuned to the living God of creation, the God who is active, the God who loves us, the God, the God who binds us together in grace and love, in fact, the God who is in us. That's really a key distinction for us as the church, right? That we have the Spirit of God uh, within us. In fact, for the, for the Christian church, the, the difference for us, you know, between us and, and Judaism or any, most other religions is that we don't have a, a temple where we go anymore to visit the presence of God. We, we don't have a church building. I mean, we have a church building, but that's not the essence of who we are as the church, God's presence is within us. Now you have to understand, uh, like the person reading, if Timothy was reading this to the Ephesian church, they would have been able to look out their window and they would have seen uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple of Artemis. Here's a, a rendering of it. It was a massive structure. Probably wherever they were at Ephesus, they could see this massive structure. This was something that people came from all over the known world to visit the, the temple of Artemis. It was more grand, uh, larger, more beautiful than the Acropolis. Uh, it had a hundred pillars and this roof of marble. See, the thing about the temple of Artemis is that people came there, of course, to worship the goddess Artemis. And while it was beautiful on the outside, I mean, it was very, very impressive on the outside, but on the inside, it, it was dead. I mean, people would go there to worship and seek of, they would seek hope and life, and they would not find it. Spiritually speaking, it was absolutely dead. And what Paul is, is saying, kind of the implicit contrast for those living in the shadow of the temple of Artemis is, look, the, the church of Jesus is different. In fact, we're the exact opposite. If you think about the original church, the disciples they were not very impressive on the outside, right? They were made up of fishermen, local business people, tax collectors. Paul was the only one who had any religious training and he, was, he defected from Judaism. They were not very impressive. You put them together, they'd like, be like the island of misfit toys, you know? They'd be like, eh, I don't know if I have a lot of confidence in these guys. But what Paul is saying is, is that's, that's not the source of our strength and our identity. It's not that we look so great on the outside, it's that inside. Inside, we have the spirit of the living God. This is our identity. This is who we are. Uh, Paul had actually written to this church previously in the letter to the Ephesians. Here's what he wrote. He just says it very uh, 
in a lot of detail, actually. He says this uh, in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. He says, So then you, the church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul's point there is, look, your identity and power are rooted in nothing less than the God of the universe. He is the one who dwells within you. He is the one that binds you together as a family, as the church. And because God is in you, then he is committed to transforming you from the inside out. That's a bit of a clue already in terms of this mystery of godliness, how we honor God with our lives. It's, it's because the, the power of God is actually within us, transforming us, shaping us, growing us in our affections for, for the Lord. But he doesn't just say we're a household of God. He also says we're an agent of truth in the world. He says that we are a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, I really love this phrase, not just because buttress is a funny word, but also because, because he takes this building imagery, right? He's kind of saying, look, you're not really a building, you're a family, but then he uses building imagery to, des- to describe us. The other reason it's interesting is because at first glance, it almost seems like it's backwards. So you, you would think, in a sense, that, that the church would be supported by the truth of God. And yet, it, it says here, it's the other way around, that we are upholding the truth. In fact, uh, Catholic theologians misinterpret this verse. They use it as a way of um, validating their claim that the church itself is a source of truth. There's, yes, the Bible, but the, but the authority of the church can actually proclaim divine truth. See, when they do that, though, they forget, they forget how Paul articulates the nature of who we are as the church. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 that we just saw. Remember it says there in verse 20 that we are built, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we are not the foundation. In fact, it might be helpful just to do a little mini um, architecture lesson. Uh, So I've got some buttresses for you because they're super cool to look at. So uh, here, these right here, these are flying buttresses which are so cool. And then this part is the buttress. Look, you can see over here. See? Buttress. This is like the pillar. And then it holds the, the weight and the structure. But what you don't see there is, of course, the foundation. Right? It's not just that there are pillars and, and buttresses holding up the roof of the church. There's a whole foundation that is necessary for the structure to be built upon. Who is the foundation of the church? It's not us. Right? We are not the ultimate truth that the church is built upon. It's it's Jesus himself. It's the, the word of God, the, the apostles and the prophets that God used to reveal the truth of God. So the church, the church is not the foundation. The church provides structure. That's our role. That we are, it says there in the text, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So, so our job is to know the truth and then to hold it high. So that everyone might see that the truthfulness of the gospel that the glory of Jesus, that that's, that's our role as, as the church. That's our privilege. That in this, in this world of darkness and falseness, that people could look to us and they will always behold 
the truth of God because we are the ones who are magnifying it with our lives, with the things that we say, with the way that we live. And this also gives us another clue in terms of godliness, right? So what does godliness look like? Well, it looks like us actually proclaiming the truth, actually holding up the truth. And as a point of application for us then, if we are actually, you know, metaphorically a a pillar and a, a buttress, we should be asking ourselves, you know, what kind of pillar are we? Like in our lives, are, are we a, a strong pillar or is our strength being eroded by falseness in our lives, by sin in our lives? Is, is there a sense in which the, the truth in our lives is kind of crumbling because we are not, in fact, pursuing the truth, that we are not turning from sin, that we are not seeking to make Jesus known. There's a real practical application here when we come to understand how God sees us, how how we are to see ourselves. So we're the house of God. We're a pillar and buttress of truth. And then the next big question that Paul deals with is who is Jesus? So so that's who is the church. Now who is Jesus? Uh, The last major section of our text is actually uh, probably a hymn. Uh, Paul is probably quoting to the Ephesian church a song that they knew Uh, something that they might sing. And uh, any good worship song is full of truths about Jesus. And this uh, little excerpt from this hymn is packed, packed with reasons to worship Jesus. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pick it apart kind of in, in couplets. So it says this, He, that's Jesus, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So we have there just a a beautiful summary of really the life and ministry of Jesus just in this one verse. And so we're going to pick it apart and see the truths that are revealed in terms of understanding who who Jesus is. Uh, So the first couplet says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. And if I had to give sort of a theme statement there, it would be this is the revelation of Jesus. This is who he is. The first bit there, manifested in the flesh, is an obvious reference to the incarnation, right? That to manifest something means to show it. And so here, Jesus showed himself to the world by taking on human flesh. The God of the universe takes on human flesh. And that word flesh is also, I think, very interesting. I mean, there's sometimes in the Bible where it says, like in Philippians, it says that he took on human form, which is also true. But it sounds more symbolic, I think. Uh, flesh, flesh is a lot more visceral, right? Flesh makes us think of, of meat and tissue, right? Cartilage. It, it's very, it, it makes us think of our own, our own body. And what we need to remember is that even though Jesus was divine, uh, his skin was not like Superman's skin. You know what I mean? It wasn't bulletproof skin. It wasn't whip-proof skin. It wasn't nail-proof skin. He would have had skin just like any other Mediterranean man at the time. It would have been olive, kind of brown-colored, would have had hairy arms, would have had very calloused hands from all of his carpentry work. It was, it was real flesh. And that flesh, when he was younger, like any other child, would have been loved well, right? By Mary and Joseph, right? When he fell down, scraped his knee, Mary would have come and put whatever they put on, I guess some cloth, dirty cloth probably. They didn't have any band-aids. But she would have cared for him, right? Joseph, when he was in the shop, you know, smashed his thumb, right? He would have cared for him. He was hugged. He was loved. He was kissed. But when he got older, we know also that he was, he was slapped. 
He was, he was beaten. He was spit upon. He, he, was, he was tortured. That skin felt all of the pain of the, of the beatings and the, the scourging and the crucifixion itself. In 1 Peter 4.1, Peter says simply, Christ suffered in the flesh. He remained in the flesh, in fact, after he died. His corpse was, was taken down from the cross and, and put in the tomb just like any other, any other body. This here, right at the beginning, is, a, is, a, is just shedding light on the reality of what it means that, that God came in the flesh, that Jesus came and lived a life just like us and then went to the, went to the cross. But we see in the second part of that couplet, really, the power. The power of, of why Jesus came and what he did. It says there that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, to be vindicated means to be proved true, right? So if there's like a, uh, a court case and, and someone claims innocence, they, they are vindicated when the, the gavel drops and the judge says innocent, right? Or the jury says innocent. At that moment, right, the prosecutor, basically what's being said is prosecution, you're wrong. You got it wrong. He's innocent. And to the defendant, you're right. Everything you said was true. You, you can go free, See, Jesus made a lot of claims about himself, but the main one, as you probably know, is that he, he claimed to be divine. He claimed to be God. We see it all through his ministry. Here's just one example to remind us. This is when uh, the guys uh, bring their paralytic friend through the roof and they bring, it to Je- bring him to Jesus in Mark 2, uh, beginning in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In fact, this claim of divinity is the very thing that God Jesus killed. Right? It's one thing to do miracles in the name of God. It's another thing to claim to be God. So the religious leaders and the scribes, they, they got together and they got him crucified. And when he is on the cross... They, they mock him for his claims to be God, for the things that he said about himself. Look, look here in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 39. And those who passed by him, by derided him. So he's, he's hanging on the cross at this point, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They're basically saying, Jesus, you're a liar. Jesus, you're obviously a liar. False prophet, false Messiah, false savior. You can't even save yourself. They're mocking him for his claims. And he endured all of that endured all of those accusations for our sake so that we would be set free. But he was vindicated, wasn't he? Not, not by the proclamation of some kangaroo court, right? Not because the, the priests or the leaders of the time you know, proclaimed what he said is true, not because some other earthly authority proclaimed what he said is true or, or gave some verdict. He was vindicated by the undeniable reality of the resurrection, Right? When that guarded and sealed grave tomb was opened, when people came and saw that the body was gone, a verdict rang throughout the land. And the verdict was, look, Jesus is the true Messiah. 
right? Jesus is the, the true Savior. Jesus is the Son of God, just like he said he was. And you notice that in our text here, it says vindicated by the Spirit. That's because the, the Spirit was involved in the resurrection of Christ. In fact, the whole Trinity was. But we've seen a number of places that he was raised by the power of the Spirit, we can imagine the Spirit breathed life back into Jesus as, as, a, as kind of an echo of the life that was breathed into us at the time of creation and a foreshadow of, of the spiritual life that would come into us when we come to faith. See, this is the revelation of Jesus. This is, this is the core of our belief and, and who we are as the church, that all of this has been done to honor himself and to, and to save us. So the revelation of Jesus then leads to the, to the witness of Jesus. The next couplet there, uh, Jesus then, all of that was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. Uh, from the moment Jesus was vindicated, there were witnesses and messengers uh, proclaiming that truth boldly, and some of those messengers were angels. Right? Angels uh, were not just actors, or participants in the story of Jesus. We know they were, right? At his birth, and there it is when the grave is opened. It's not just that you know, they had a role to play. What we see here in the text is that they were, they were eager witnesses to all of the events of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, in 1 Peter, there's this, this cool verse um, where it says this, uh, starting in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look you get this real clear sense that angels themselves are excited, are eager to cast their gaze upon the events of, of our salvation, of all that Jesus did and now the impacts of it, how people are coming to faith, which strikes me as just amazing. Because think about all the things that angels have seen. I just think they've, they've been around since creation. So that means they saw the earth in its glory before Sin messed with it, right? They saw all the miracles of the Old Testament. They saw, you know, the Red Sea parted. They saw all of God's enemies being, you know, vanquished. They, they've seen everything. Anything that's on your bucket list, like if you want to go see, right, the Grand Canyon or wherever, right? <laughs> Any beautiful location, they've been there. They, they've seen it all. They've seen wonders and beauties and, and glories that we can only imagine. I don't know if they're allowed, but they probably went all through the solar system. I think I would, go see supernovas and galaxies. They've seen all of that, and yet what they long to look at is the glory of our salvation. That should tell us something about how beautiful it is to those who really know what it is. And it should make us think. I mean, this is what it made me think this week is, <clears throat> man, what do I long to look at? If I'm honest this week, it was Disney Plus, I gotta tell you, Right? <laughs> I wanted to see. I wanted to see the new Mandalorian. I wanted to see that that's what comes to my mind and my heart in my, in my weakness, right? In my, it's not that that's an evil thing. It's just the, what really captivates us. That's what went through my mind. What really captivates my mind and my heart? What gets me most excited when I think about what I can give my attention to? It's not that we can't go look at the beauties of the world, but what we should recognize is, man, if we really, if we really understand what it means that people are saved from sin, then, then, man, we would be really excited to see God at work in the lives of those around us, right? We would be most excited when we hear that someone has come to faith, 
or that someone has turned from sin or that two people in conflict have reconciled in the Lord. I mean, there's so many examples of things that we, we can and should long to look at as the church because God is at, is at work, at work in us and at work in the people around us. And what, what captivates us really does say a lot about our hearts, doesn't it? So the push here, especially tied to remember the bigger picture of what does it mean to live a godly life, is, is, is what are we casting our gaze towards? What are we filling our mind and our heart with? What excites us? Okay, but it's not simply enough to, to celebrate and to see the good news. We also need to share it. And that's, that's what we see happening with the gospel, right? Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Of course, this is a reference to the, the Great Commission. Before Jesus goes back up to heaven, he's speaking to his disciples, right? And he says, go and make disciples right? of, all the, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded. And this is what we see happen. If we had a map, right, of, of the church at that point, it would be all in Jerusalem. And then you see you see journeys, missionary journeys going out to the known world at the time, and it's spreading throughout all the globe. It's still happening to this day. I, I looked up a few stats, though, and, and uh, you probably know that the, the mission has not yet been accomplished. There's more to do. Uh, according to the Joshua Project, there are uh, 17,094 distinct language groups in the world, and there are still 7,165 language groups that have yet to be reached. That means there's no... Uh, Bible in their language. There's no uh, effective mission in their language. There, there are many nations that have not yet been reached. And we as the church, that should weigh on us, I think, yeah? We should be in prayer for that. We should be thinking, Lord, um, what's my role in that? Are we called to fund missionaries? Yes, absolutely. Are, are some of us called to go? Possibly. But we should see that this is, this is part of our role as the, as the church, feasting our eyes on the, the salvation of God and then going and, and telling others about him. Okay, the last couplet there, uh, we see now the response to Jesus, right? We've seen the revelation, we've seen the witness, and, and now we see the response both on earth and in heaven. Uh, it says Jesus is believed on in the world and taken up in glory. The essential component uh, of, a, of a Christian life really is belief, Right? It's, not just that you, it's not just that you know things about Jesus. It's not just that you know the details of the gospel. It's that you trust in Jesus. It's that you submit yourself to Christ and you receive salvation. You realize, I, I need help. I need a savior. And it's the believing that that's important. That's the actual receiving of Jesus. Uh, here's John 1, verses 10 to, 10 to 12. It says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's a reference to the Jewish people there. But verse 12, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, believing in Jesus is evidence that you've been given spiritual life. Right? That's, that's the response that comes. That's the, the awakening within you, and that is the, the core of our faith. But we shouldn't get the impression that, that like in looking at this verse, when it says, you know, believed on in the world... We shouldn't get the impression that everyone, of course, who hears about Jesus then necessarily believes, or even that it's always a quick and easy thing for people uh, to do. Yeah. I mean, the disciples themselves, if you remember some of the response after Jesus, that, that they find the tomb empty, their response of faith is very spotty. It's very mixed. 
I mean, the women themselves, they, they discover and they run back and tell the other disciples. And it says there in, in the Gospels that they did not believe. Right? They questioned the women. said, what are you, what are you talking about? Hey, some, some other explanation must account for the fact that Jesus' body is gone. When Peter rose and went to the tomb, he goes in and examines the grave clothes. And then the word that describes his reaction is he marveled. Which is kind of like he, he was amazed and wondered, but it doesn't really express a conviction of belief. When there's the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, you remember, and Jesus comes and he's beside them, but he kind of cloaks himself. They don't really know who he is. And they're talking about all the things they clearly don't believe. They're saying, I don't know, something's going on, but we're not sure what it is. And Jesus calls them out. Remember, here's Luke 24, 25, and 26. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's saying, look, you, you still don't, No, you still don't believe after everything that you've seen, after everything you've known about the scriptures in the past. And of course, Thomas is the most famous one who doubted. He said he wouldn't believe until he saw Jesus and was able to examine the wounds in his hands and on his side. And we see that Jesus graciously appears to him, gives him the evidence he was seeking for. Here's John 20, beginning of verse 27. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put it your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So he, he believes, finally. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So why did Jesus say that? Was he saying that, look, if you really want to come to faith, you should shut off your rational mind. Just stop asking questions and just believe? No. Was he saying that we shouldn't? Seek evidence that we shouldn't investigate? No. No, what he was saying is that there is an even greater source of truth and revelation, an even greater source of truth than the appearance of Christ himself. It's the helper that he was going to send. It's the very one who we're told in the Bible is going to lead us into all truth. It's the Spirit of God. It's, it's the Spirit of God that ultimately and finally opens our eyes and opens our hearts to believe the things that we know about Jesus. In fact, we get a picture of it back on the road to Emmaus after Jesus tells him everything in the Scripture and, and then he's, he's about to go. It says there in Luke 24, 31, and their eyes were opened. Right? Their eyes were opened. They saw him for who he was and then before long they run back to Jerusalem and they say, look, the Lord has risen. It's, it's a picture of this awakening that is necessary in the hearts of everyone who would come to faith. Look, if you're wrestling with belief, maybe, maybe you've never really expressed faith in Christ. Maybe you've heard a lot of the gospel and there's a sense in which you really want to believe, but you're struggling. What we should see here is that it's a good thing to try to get as many answers as we can. There are good answers about a lot of the events of the resurrection, of the gospel, there's a lot of historical texts that can help us with that. But that's a good thing. We should ask a lot of questions. But in the end, the thing that we really need is, is not more information. We need transformation. We need to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And for those of us who are struggling to believe in the midst of our faith, the same is true. It's not that we don't examine the Scriptures. Of course we do. But we also should be in prayer. We need to pray, Lord, would you, would you help me to see Help me to see you clearly. Help me to see my sin clearly and come to the point of true conviction about who you are. 
so that I might have faith. For the Bible says that faith is a gift by the grace of God. So belief is the right response to Jesus in the world. And we see there the, the, the glory of it, but there's another glory. Because Jesus is, is received in the world in this way, but then he's taken up in glory. And this is a very clear reference to the ascension. See, after Jesus was resurrected, after he, he appeared to everyone, went and showed Thomas' side, ate fish with some people, he, was, he visited a lot of them, then it was time to go back up to heaven. And we see this in Acts 1, uh, verse 9, and then when Jesus had said these things, all his disciples are in front of him, right? As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And, and we, should, we should see here that the final note, when you're telling the story of Jesus, is always glory for Jesus, right? That he, he comes humbly, that he suffers greatly, that he's resurrected, but the final note is one of glory, that he's lifted up in glory, taken up into, into heaven. Why glory? Well, because, because he proved himself to be who he said he was. Because he accomplished his mission. Because he was vindicated by the Spirit. He defeated Satan's sin and death on the cross on our behalf. Because in a real sense, he was a conquering king. Right? Returning home. And, and when commanders of armies who have been successful return home, there is always celebration. There's always glory and honor for them. I was reminded of this uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Remembrance Day, I went to the Remembrance Day Assembly uh, of Porter Street Elementary. That's where Thomas goes to school. And uh, it was a really a great assembly. And one of the teachers had put together kind of a video presentation uh, telling everyone the story of Canada's role in liberating uh, the Netherlands. And it was just a fantastic way to kind of captivate the hearts and minds of the kids there. And it really just went through this this amazing story that we kind of know, I kind of knew, but then when you hear the details, you were again struck by just the, 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 the amazing gravity, the, the, the horrible situation. I mean, she, she began with the occupation of the Netherlands by the Nazis for five years and talked about how at first it was kind of a, you know, wasn't a, a huge imposition. They kind of came in soft, but then it got increasingly difficult to the final winter they called the winter of hunger where the Dutch people had nothing to eat and no fuel to burn. So they, they ate tulip bulbs to survive, and they burned all of their furniture to stay warm. They, they burned the cabinets in their house. They barely made it through that winter. Many did not make it through that winter. And then in the spring, the Allies finally, finally pushed back the Germans. And, and there, was, there was hope in the land again. And, and one of the first practical uh, experiences of that hope was something that was called uh, Operation Manna. And, uh, and this was um, basically uh, food being dropped from the sky by the Allied planes, by the, the RAF and, and the Canadian planes. And all these tons and tons of food would land on the ground and the Dutch people run out and just pile it up. They hadn't eaten in, in months. On May 5th, May 5th was Liberation Day. When the Germans finally capitulated, signed off, and, and backed out. And that is a day that, that still to this day is celebrated in the Netherlands. And on that day in the, in the streets, you can see the, the pictures, the celebration. Right? They were finally set free. They, they were cheering and shouting. There's stories of the, the Canadian troops coming in. Everyone's hugging them. Everyone's so excited. So much so that, that 
the Dutch sent 100,000 tulip bulbs over to Canada as a way of saying thank you. And every year since then, they've sent 10,000 tulip bulbs. Our nations are, are bound together because of this amazing liberation. And the thing of it is that, that I knew these things. I knew these things in some vague way. But when it was retold to me as I was sitting there in that gym, I, I mean, I was overcome with emotion. I had tears in my eyes just, just putting myself in that place yet again. And what came to my mind as I reflected on that this week, thinking about Jesus returning into, into the throne room of heaven, can you imagine the response as he entered that room? Can you imagine the angels singing his praises, glorifying him for what he had done? See, the thing we need to understand is that when Jesus left heaven, I mean, he was divine. He, he, was, he was brilliant. He was crackling with with power and divinity, when he returned, he had scars on his hands. He had a wound in his side, but he was no less brilliant. In fact, he was even more glorious because he had been willing to humble himself and then had conquered all of the evil in the world. Remember why Paul is telling the story. He's seeking to unpack for us the mystery of godliness. And the connection that he's making here is, is to say, look, when you know Jesus this way, like when your mind and your heart is filled with the things of God, then it becomes very easy to live a life of godliness. Be- because, because the emotion, because the, the, the thoughts, the feelings, the realities of what it means to be saved from our sin and what Christ has done, that they're right at the forefront of our mind. And so when we when we look for opportunities to uphold the truth of the gospel, to honor Jesus, it, it becomes effortless, just, just like for the Dutch people. It was, not a, it was not a challenge for them to flood into the streets and to celebrate and, and praise the troops because they had experienced it. They, they knew what had been won on their behalf. I think the question we should be asking ourselves is, do we, do we really know what Christ has done for us? And if we do, then, then how are we going to live? See, the mystery of godliness is, in fact, a mystery that has been revealed. We know how to honor the Lord. We know that the way forward is through the power and grace of the Spirit of God in our lives. And it's through filling our minds and our hearts with the truths of the gospel, of just actually, actually thinking about where you would be without Jesus. My hope for us as a church is that we would really see it as such a privilege to be that pillar, to be that buttress, to be able to hold high the truth of the gospel so that everyone around us might look and see it as a beacon of hope and that they too might come to know the same truth that we know. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word again. I'm thankful for Paul, thankful for his faithfulness, thankful, thankful for the reminder of these things that, that we know, and yet we, we don't really know. We forget so often. Our minds and our hearts get caught up in all those things, Lord, which seems so much uh, more immediate to us, and, and, yet, and yet are not filled with the same power and glory, Jesus, as what you've done for us. And so I pray for us, Lord. I pray you'd help us to, to turn from those things which are maybe not evil things, but just are captivating us too much. 
And indeed, Lord, there may be things that are, that are untruthful, that are vile, that are wrong, and we do need to turn from them so that we might honor you with our lives. I pray that would be true of us as the church. I pray for those here, Lord, that are struggling with faith, struggling to believe, struggling, Lord, perhaps with doubt. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring clarity to their minds and their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that more and more people would, would come to saving faith. We pray that for those that gather with us here on Sunday. We pray that for, for those in our neighborhood. Lord, may this be a season, Lord, where your spirit is on the move and may we have the joy of being able to glorify you for the, for the works that you do amongst us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.